Awesome. How are you guys today? Yeah, we're doing okay? Yeah, a little quiet out there. That's all right. I'm glad to see everybody. I hope you're glad to be here. My name is Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Thankful that you guys are with us today. Uh, we started a new series last week called Extremely Ordinary Christianity, studying Philippians chapters 1 and 2. That's where we'll be again today. We're going to do this leading up to Easter, so I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21 today. If you have a Bible or your device and you want to turn there or find it, we'll have it up on the screens for you as we get into it as well. But you'll notice over the next several weeks, uh, these will all kind of bleed together and blend together uh, on some of the themes that Paul's covering here in Philippians, at the beginning of Philippians. He's setting the foundation. Um, It's all meant to be read at once, obviously. It's a letter. Uh, So I'd encourage you to go back and read the letter, Uh, maybe every week as we go through this series, at least chapters one and two, but if you just go back and read the whole letter every week and you sit down and do it all at once, it probably won't take you more than 15, maybe 20 minutes tops if you do it slow. So I would encourage you to read through the letter because this is Paul to the Philippian church and it's all meant to be read together, but we will see some major themes here in chapters one and two throughout all of the letter. And that's why uh, we talked about love last week, because love is the foundation. So we saw him talk about that at the very beginning. The same goes for this week. It's a very foundational thing here. It's, It's how to live the Christian life in general, what it looks like to be a Christian in some sense, the essential Christian message. And he kind of talks a little bit about it in, in the way of fearlessness or courage. And so what does it look like? What's the secret to living a fearless life or a courageous Christian life? So let me just start by asking you this question today to get you thinking about it. What makes you afraid? What makes you afraid? Now, I don't mean what scares you like spiders or you know, ghosts and goblins or that kind of thing, or how my wife gets scared when I jump out at her from behind you know, the corner or something, and she immediately reacts like that every single time. It's hilarious. Or I'll just put myself under the bus, how I get scared of maybe bugs being on me. Uh, because there was a time last year where I was standing in this very spot. I don't know if some of you guys were here for that. And I was preaching, and it was a very uh, serious moment in the sermon. I think I'd gotten to presenting the gospel, and all of a sudden, I felt this thing move from the back of my neck all the way down the side of my neck, and then drop to the floor. And, you know, in this building, my immediate thought was, okay, a roach has dropped from the ceiling on me. It's disgusting. And so I flipped out. You know, I just flipped out immediately. Uh, It was, in fact, my mic clip that I forgot to clip to the back of my shirt, and uh, I freaked out over nothing. So, you know, it's not, I'm not talking about that kind of fear today, okay, just so that we're clear here. It's not what, what, you know, scares you in the moment, jump scares, but what really makes you afraid in your life? Like, what are some of the deepest fears that you might have? What, what do you fear the most in your life? That's the question here. Maybe you fear losing loved ones. Maybe you look in and you're a parent and you're like, man, I'm so afraid of losing my children, Or maybe you're a grandparent and you look in and say, I'm so afraid of losing access to my grandchildren. Or you fear losing your job. Or you fear losing your money and draining your bank account and seeing that that, number go down. Maybe you fear losing the approval of others. Maybe you fear losing success in your own eyes or the eyes of someone else. Maybe you fear losing your comfort or your pleasure. Or you fear losing your personal freedoms and independence because we are Americans here. Maybe you even fear death, so maybe you fear losing your life. I want to go out on a limb and just tell you what I think based off of Paul and what he's saying here in Philippians, what does make you the most afraid in your life. And that thing that makes you most afraid is losing whatever it is you live for. So we might ask the question, what do you live for? To get at the answer to the question, what makes you most afraid? Because usually whatever you live for, you're afraid of losing that 
And that fear of losing whatever that thing is that you're living for is what you're afraid of most. And Paul's going to couch all of this language in suffering today because suffering is losing things. It's losing comfort. It's losing joy. It's losing happiness. It's losing people. It's losing your position in life. Suffering is losing things. So are you afraid to suffer as a Christian because you're afraid of losing that thing that you're living for the most in this life? And our text is going to deal with that today and give us the secret to living without fear, even if we suffer, even as we lose things. Paul's going to teach us to live with contentment and with joy, no matter what we might lose in this life. He says that living to the Christian is living for Jesus. That's the secret sauce that makes it all go. That's the secret sauce that makes it all taste good, okay? The secret to life without fear is living for Jesus. And so here's our very straightforward main point for today. If you're taking notes and you like to write things down, live for Jesus. I'd, Captain Obvious up here, but that's it, right? That's the essential Christian message, is it not? To live for Jesus. It's the only life worth living is a life lived for Jesus. When you live for him, you can't lose anything that's gonna completely rock your world because what you're living for is everything that you need. And what you're living for is Jesus. And you can't lose him. See, Paul gives us probably one of the most well-known verses in Christian culture today, outside of things like, you know, John 3.16 or something like that. He says, for him to live is Christ, which is extreme enough. But then he tags on a second part of that, which says to die is gain. Even more extreme to say something like that. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He can't lose his life and, and, and it rock his world. He can't, it's not even his life that he can give up and it would rock his world. To die would actually be gain for him. That's radical. It's extreme. How could he say that? Losing your life is losing everything, right? I mean, in death, you can't gain more money. You can't gain more approval. You can't gain more happiness or joy. You can't gain anything. When you die, you lose. You actually lose everything. You lose your life and everything in it. Unless living for Jesus changes what death means for you. Paul's going to push us to focus our eyes on eternity here. He's going to say, when you live, you live with eternity in mind because even dying would be gain for you. It's really a radical statement. Paul lives his life for Jesus and dying would be gain because what he's living for can't be taken away in death. It'll actually be fulfilled. It'll be given its, in its fullest sense when he dies. So if Paul lives, it's for Jesus. If he dies, he'll be with Jesus. It's a win-win. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul wants to die. It doesn't mean he has like this death wish mentality. It doesn't mean he's going to go commit suicide or something crazy like that. I just want to make sure that we put that out there because death is actually the enemy in the Christian worldview. See, death is the problem. Death is a result of sin and brokenness in the world. God never wanted death for us. That's not our ultimate end. But because Jesus defeated the death for us that we see in this world, we know that it's not the end for us. It's just the beginning, actually. So life and suffering now aren't meaningless in the face of even death. And now death isn't best. It's not what's best for us. Life is what's best for us, but it's eternal life. Life forever with Jesus, being known by him and knowing him forever. So either way, whether we live or whether we die, even though death is the enemy, we still win because it's been dealt with. See, the secret to dealing with the ups and downs in life, the secret to overcoming fear, the secret to being okay in any situation that we face, is whether it's hard or whether it's easy, whether it's good or bad, whether you're suffering or whether you're in comfort, it doesn't matter. It's living for Jesus. That's the key here. So if you're here and you're not a believer, man, this is really helpful for you to hear the essential Christian message in some sense that Paul's talking about here. Because it is extreme. It sounds extreme to just live for Jesus and that's it. That's your motivation for everything? Really? 
But see, that's extreme to you, but it's ordinary to us if you're not a believer because it's extremely ordinary Christianity. That's what it looks like to be a believer. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Next week, we're actually going to dig into what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven and how that plays out for us. But today, we're going to look at what Paul wrote here in verses 12 through 21 to hear what he says about living for Christ, living for Jesus. Last week, he talked about how he loved the Philippians and he prayed that their love would grow for God, for one another, for the world. Their love, just their love in general would grow. That it would take them low and humble them. That it would make them grow in their faith. That it would help them know one another and know God more. Today, we'll see that he wants us to live for Jesus. That's what he's talking about. So last week was love. This week is living on mission in some sense, living for Jesus. He says this in verse 12. Let's go ahead and read it. He said, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Man, that's really cool, isn't it? Now, maybe, maybe uh, you remember Paul's situation here because Paul's laying out this extreme life of a believer, but he's actually writing while he's in jail. You know, it's 10 years after he's planted the church here at Philippi. He's writing back to them, and he's writing from Roman custody. He and Silas were, you know, if you recall last week, we talked a little bit about this. He and Silas were put in jail in Philippi. So I can imagine when the Philippians read this and they know his situation, they're like, oh, Paul, he hasn't changed much, has he? Still getting arrested, you know, still in jail. That's what they saw when, they were, when he was there in Philippi, uh, Philippi with them. Now he's in jail again. And what it likely meant for him was that he was chained literally to a Roman imperial guard 24-7. So they probably did it in shifts, and he had no privacy. He was chained literally with a, with a chain to someone else. So that means he couldn't go to the bathroom unless somebody was with him. He couldn't sleep unless he was chained to a guard. He couldn't write his letters unless he was chained. I mean, everything like that. It's like the, the craziest form of torture for us as Americans, right? We could never, ever consider doing that in our lives. We have to have our space. We're American, baby. We got to have our space. Give us our independence, you know? It's like, a, it's like a terrible form of torture for us. But for Paul, he said it meant advancing the gospel. Even what was happening to him served to advance the gospel, to advance the mission in the world. He assured the Philippians that his suffering wasn't in vain. It served to advance the mission. That's what Paul was living for. He didn't care about his suffering. He didn't care about being in chains. Actually, he saw it as a way to fulfill the mission, to be in chains and to be next to this imperial guard 24-7. He cares most about the mission advancing. Why? Because God's mission was his mission. And so that's the first note that you can take if you want to write this down. God's mission is our mission. That's what it means to be a believer. When you're living for Jesus, it means that his mission becomes your mission. Whatever he's about is what you're now about. Until we take God's mission up as our own personal mission, we'll never have the view of suffering or even of life that Paul has here. Because Paul actually saw his suffering as the way to do the very thing God called him to do. Being chained to a different imperial guard every day, no big deal for Paul. That means he just gets to share the gospel with so many more people. They're brought to him. He doesn't even have to go anywhere, right? He gets to share the gospel with all these dudes. Now, whether they wanted to hear it or not, they were probably a little grumpy at times. I would have been if, you know, I didn't really want to hear what this crazy, you know, religious zealot had to say. And yet Paul sees it as a way to fulfill the mission. His focus was on the fact that all these guards directly under Caesar's control, that's what it means to be the imperial guard. And everyone else, he says there in the text, 
can see why he's here. They, they know the, the gospel. The gospel goes forward in the upper echelons of society now in a way that's kind of in the background, right? It's all the, it's all the security guys. It's in the background. It'd be like all the secret service coming to know Jesus and then being able to share the gospel with everybody that they come in contact with. That's pretty powerful, and Paul sees that. He takes the bigger picture, and God's mission is Paul's mission. He could have done what so many of us might do when he suffered, though. He could have asked the question, hey, why me? God, why did you put me in chains now? This doesn't make any sense. I've been nothing but obedient to you, God. I've done your will. Why do I have to go through this? He says, he could have said, you know, haven't I shared the gospel enough? Like, God, I'm in the middle of church planting. I'm church planting all over the empire. Church planting is God's plan A for changing the world. I've planted tons of churches. Don't you want me to keep doing that? Why would you put me in jail now? Why am I suffering now? We might ask things like that of God as well. God, I, haven't I been living for you? God, haven't I done all the right things? Haven't I done everything that you've asked? God, why did I lose my parent or loved one right now? God, why did I lose my job right now? God, why did I lose my health right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm living for you. Why are you making me suffer, God? Doesn't it slow your mission down? Can't, I can't fulfill your mission now. I'm having to deal with this thing over here. Man, Paul doesn't see it that way in his life and suffering. And I think he's trying to teach us something here. God wants us to understand that God's mission is our mission now. Even our suffering serves to advance the mission in some way. You can write this down as well, kind of as a tag on to that first point. Our suffering serves the mission. Even our suffering serves the mission. You'd think it would be the opposite, right? It's really interesting. I listened to the late Pastor Tim Keller, St. Tim, on this this week, and he said that Christians actually have an additional problem of evil than people in the world even have. Because, you know, people in the world will go, well, see, that's why I don't believe in Jesus. This is the problem of, of suffering and pain. Well, how can a good God allow such suffering and pain in this world? He's not either good or he can't deal with it, so I don't believe. And listen, Christians have a problem that even the world doesn't face because we actually do believe in God. And yet we still see pain and suffering, and we actually have to experience pain and suffering as his followers. So we got to wrestle with that. We have an additional hurdle to overcome to believe in God's goodness because he promises us suffering in some sense as we follow in Jesus' footsteps who suffered on our behalf. So we look in at this and we go, well, suffering then serves the mission. It's not meaningless. It can often feel meaningless though, right? We'll look in at it and go, why? Is this really the quote, reward that we get for doing everything that God asks us to do or living our lives for him and living on mission? Wouldn't it go against his will because it hinders the mission? And he says, no, our suffering serves the mission. That's not what Paul or the rest of the Bible would believe that you know, suffering hinders the mission. History bears witness to that. Our suffering actually serves to see God's kingdom advance. It's been like that for thousands of years in the church. We suffer and the mission advances. Man, that, that's the irony of God's good message to the world, that suffering brings about salvation in some sense. So I could, I could give you hundreds of examples of this. I thought of one this week that I remembered from The Insanity of God, a book by Nick Ripkin. Very good, by the way. If you haven't read this, highly recommend you write that title down, The Insanity of God, and read that or listen to that later because he talks a lot about his missionary journeys and stories of interacting with uh, nationals in, in multiple different countries across the world. But one key part of the story, he talks about losing his 16-year-old son while on the mission field in Nairobi, Kenya. He, he, his son died while he was on the mission field. 
16 years old. It was Easter morning, 1997. And he said that his son at 1.30 in the morning woke, woke them up. He began having an asthma attack that was very severe, which he was prone to before, but this one was different. And so they administered an EpiPen and it didn't do anything. And so they waited a little bit. They administered a second EpiPen, still couldn't get him to start breathing normally. They rushed him to the hospital. By the time they got there, Nick said that he was doing CPR in the backseat of his car. And his son died of cardiac arrest, even while they stood there praying for him together in a group in the hospital. And people even today wonder why God would do such a thing, right? I mean, why would God seemingly do this to a a missionary who's trying to live his life for God's mission? Take his son, his 16-year-old son. But Nick said that God didn't waste his suffering. Man, you can just imagine the testimony that he used to give him deeper conversations with the people group that he was working with there. And and Nick's perspective was that he likely used his suffering to enable many more hardened hearts to open up to the gospel than, than would have otherwise. That's how Nick looked at it. He said, I had conversation after conversation with nationals on the ground here that I may never otherwise would have been able to have. And God used my son's death and my suffering and my wife's suffering to open the hard hearts of those people that he sent us to reach. And could God have done it a different way? Maybe, maybe. But that's just not a helpful question because he doesn't. He does it through our suffering. In pursuit of the mission, our suffering becomes purposeful, not meaningless. It's not meaningless, not wasted. Suffering in the hospital when you have to go for the death of a loved one or even for yourself and that bad diagnosis, it's not meaningless, it's not wasted. Losing your job, not understanding why God is not providing for your family. It's not meaningful. It's not wasted. There's a purpose behind that for God's mission. Having strife in your family, dealing with a hard situation there, division, whatever it is, it's not meaningless. It's not wasted. God will use those things for his mission. Now, there's a lot more we could say there, but let's move on to what, what else Paul writes because then he moves on to Uh, the disunity that he sees in the church. Paul writes in verse 15, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. How ironic. What does it matter, though, he says? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. In in what does he rejoice? In the proclamation of Christ, in the gospel going forward, in the mission advancing. Yes, I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul's not even afraid to lose uh, to to the preachers around him who are trying to take his goodwill and his joy. They're doing it to trouble him. And he's like, it doesn't trouble me. As long as the gospel is going forward, I'm okay with that. Even if it's out of rivalry or envy or anything like that, he's for the advance of the gospel because God's mission is his mission. And if somebody else is on mission, even with wrong motives, he's okay with that because he's for the mission. So you can write this down as well for us. We're for those who are for God's mission. If they're for God's mission, then we're for them, even if we disagree on some things, 
even if we disagree on some theological things, even if they're not for us. That's a hard one, right? Then we're for them. I think I've told you guys this before, but you know, we moved here to start our church three, three, almost maybe four years ago now. I'd have to, math is not one of my strong points, okay? So I think it was about three and a half years ago or so, we'll say. And unfortunately, I've had conversation after conversation. I mean, I'm not exaggerating, exaggerating when I say I, I probably can't count on both hands how many conversations I've had with Christians who don't like that we planted a, a new church in Roanoke. How many conversations? Why are you planting a church in Roanoke? Why don't you just come revitalize? Why are you doing this? I had one guy message me right when we hit the ground uh, about some language that I used on the website, and he said, you need to take that down. It's very discouraging to other Christians in the area. And I was like, man, I, I don't think I need to take it down. You know? and, and then he got really upset and was like, well, you don't, you're not going to take a gentle rebuke? Huh? You know? And he, he was like, you're very prideful. You're very arrogant. I'm like, wow, okay, so... <laughs> I'm the arrogant one. Okay, I, brother, I'm just not going to take it down, but I'm sorry it offends you. What was the language? I said, and I'll qu- I quote this from our website, basically. Then I give the statistic about there being a 40% drop in evangelical Christians. While there are some vibrant churches in Roanoke, the majority of churches are dying. There's been a 40% drop in evangelical Christians over a 10-year period of time. That's the language he was upset about. I, that's just the case, right? I mean, if, if there's a 40% drop, then that means churches here are dying by and large. And we can see it across the valley. It wasn't meant to be ugly or you know, hurtful. It's just the truth. And I, I wouldn't take a gentle rebuke, but I, it wasn't so gentle. And I've had conversation after conversation like that with guys here in Roanoke, pastors, other Christians. I hate that. And, and it's been really hard for me personally, just to tell you, like to fight the bitterness, right? To, to, to think, okay, well, these guys must be idiots. no. Man, if I think that, then there's a problem with my heart and I'm in the wrong spot. What Paul does here is not that, is it? That's not what he does. He he doesn't say, you know what? They ought to be shut up. You know, if somebody preaches out a rivalry or envy, I hope that they die. I hope that they shut their doors. That's not what he says, is it? Man, that's really convicting to me because what does he say? He says, what's it matter to me? As long as the gospel advances, I'm, I'm okay with that. I rejoice. We don't see them as our enemy. We don't stop associating with them. Now, we might, you know, lament the disunity. We might lament the hurt that it causes. I think we probably need to constantly uh, see ways that we might be doing it with other believers out of envy or rivalry. Maybe even try to point it out to those brothers and sisters when we see them doing that to us. But then we have to move forward in love and forgiveness in a way that Paul talks about here Too many Christians are preoccupied with who they need to judge and how they need to fix other Christians rather than how to love them. That means us too, right? It means us. So we need to look at that very seriously. Thankfully, I found several believers and pastors here who are for us and for our church. You know, we talked about partnership in the gospel last week when Paul mentioned that. He was thankful for the Philippians' partnership. I'm thankful for their partnership. There are Christians all across this valley that are for us being here. Isn't that cool? They love that we're here. They love that we planted the church. And some of them aren't even in our denomination. They might be Presbyterian. They might be Anglican. I'm so thankful. They're, they're Lutheran. We disagree on some theological issues, as, in other words. We disagree on some how to do church issues, and yet they're for us. Man, I love that. That's what we need to celebrate. But whether it's out of rivalry and envy or whether it's out of goodwill, we need to rejoice that the mission is going forward Let's finish out our text for today. Paul concludes this in verse 20. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why. That's, that's his motivation here. What a powerful phrase. Can we just think about that for a second? Can we just consider what that really means for our lives? For me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain? Really? That's so extreme. Do you believe that? You know, in the Greek language, Paul literally writes, to live, Christ. To die, gain. He says it very, very shortly with no qualifiers in there to make the point. It's a very simple structure to emphasize the radical nature of what it looks like. Living, Jesus. Dying, gain. That's what it means. There's no question that life is for Jesus for Paul. That's what it means. It's to honor him. It's to serve him. It's to live for him. Whatever exalting word or qualifier you want to put in there, living is for him. But death is also gain because it's to be with him forever. And we'll look at that more in depth next week with the citizens of heaven concept. But you'll notice that in this phrase, to me, living is for Christ, is three things here that I modified from one of the pastors that I listened to this week. I thought it was really good. So I'm going to give you a sermon within a sermon. Okay, you ready for this? It's personal, it's practical, and it's powerful. You can see how the points played out in the sermon that I heard this from. He says, to me, is personal. It's personal to Paul, right? God's mission is Paul's mission. Then we've already said that. God's mission is our mission. It's personal to us. To me, it's personal. But then he says, to live, which means it's practical. It changes your life. It changes how you live your life every day. That love that he talked about last week, that's how your life is lived now. And because you love people and you love God, you want to see them know Jesus. And so it changes how you live. You live now for the mission in practical ways. Your job is no longer just about you making money and about you getting success and accolades. Your job becomes about the mission. Your family is no longer about you feeling good about having kids and ma making sure that they get raised right and make good decisions. It's so that they can be raised for the mission, right? I see some head nods. It's all of those things get changed. You see, it's practical. It changes how you live. For me, it's personal to live. It's practical, but it is Christ. It's powerful because it's his power that changes you. It's not you changing you. It's not you making better decisions. It's Jesus helping you every second of every day. He's the one that's gonna carry to completion the good work that he started. And that's what Paul said in verse six from last week. It's powerful because it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead in you, raising you from the dead every day so that one day you will be raised from the dead. Remember how salvation is in every tense? You were saved by Jesus, but now you're being saved and then you will one day be saved. That's what that power does in you. And so I think you can write this down as a kind of a summary way to think about it. The only life worth living is a life lived for Jesus. I already said that, but I want you to write it down because that is the idea that Paul's getting at here. It touches on the deepest part of who we are as human beings. The very core, it's personal. It's practical for us and how we live our lives, but it's powerful because it's God's power in us working every single day. This is extremely ordinary Christianity. Isn't that awesome? That's what Paul's talking about here. It takes us back to the question that we asked to begin with. What or who are you really living for in your life? Because if you put anything else in the blank of that statement, to live is what? Then you're not following Jesus. You've got a problem in your life. I mean, just think about it. For me, living is what? I mean, really, really do some work here. I'm asking you to apply this to your life in a real way. 
For me, living really is for the pleasure that I can gain in this life. For me, living really is for doing the work that I do every day. For me, living really is for following the right rules, doing all the right stuff so that everybody else thinks that I have it all together. For me, living is for getting the approval of other people. Tell you what, social media feeds right into that. Those likes make you feel real good. Sorry, sorry, that's it. I'm just giving you that. That's all I'll say. What would honestly fill in that blank with you? I, I think that's really important. I had, to, I had to wrestle with that this week. Can I always say that it's Christ? For me, living is what? Here's the problem. You can write this down. The problem is we naturally live for anything but Jesus. Guys, that is our current situation. When we're in this flesh, when we're in this body, and we'll see Paul tease this out a little bit more throughout the letter, when we live in this world, our problem is that we will live for anything but Jesus. We'll try to live for anything but Jesus. And you know, sometimes what we need to do is ask those closest to us what we're actually living for because sometimes we can't even see it ourselves. You know, when I hear my kids say, hey, you've spent a lot of time on your phone today. I mean, they'll say that. They'll call me out. That probably means I'm living for my work a little bit too much that day, right? Like when you see somebody say, hey, brother, I, I, think, I think you've said this thing in a way that is maybe prideful in your life. Maybe You know, I mean, you need somebody to point that out. That's why we have community and DNA groups here at Redemption Church. You've got to have that person in your life who you allow to open up yourself to and say, I need this. I need somebody to help, help me see because I can't see myself. I need that in my life. The Bible tells us none of us say that we live for Jesus perfectly. We can't say that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. None of us can say we live for Jesus with the totality of who we are. To me, living is something else, but it's usually not Jesus. And Paul's saying that we need to get to a place where we can say living for me is living for Jesus. And he's not saying he's perfect in that when he says that, by the way. He'll go on in chapter 3 to say, not that I've already obtained this perfection. So remember, that love takes him low. Reminds him that he's not obtained that perfection yet. But he says, I take hold of it because Christ has a hold of me. He's taking hold of the perfection that Jesus is applying to his life. See, if somebody were to ask Jesus what he lived his life for, in some sense, he would have answered you. Because he has a hold of Paul. He has a hold of you. He has a hold of me. Now, of course, you know, so I, hear, I hear people saying, well, G Jesus would have said, for God's glory, of course, right? Who did Jesus live for? God. What was Jesus' life for? God. Of course, I hope that we understand that. Paul saturated this whole thing with God's glory. That's a given, I would hope. But in some very real sense, Jesus would say to me, living is you. Because why did he come into the world in the first place? It was for you and me so that he could make us right with God, so that we could believe in him and have everlasting life. That's exactly what he came into the world to do, was to live the perfect life that you and I should live but never will. And then he died the death that you and I deserve for not living that perfect life. See, we have a problem. We want to live for other things, not for God. We want to live for our own glory, not for God's. We want to live for the glory of other things, not God's glory. Jesus lived that perfect life in our place completely for God's glory on our behalf. And then instead of taking the reward that he deserved and living forever with God, he made himself low and he died for us. 
That's the gospel that we believe. That's what makes us go low. That's what makes us humble because we remember that we don't deserve that every single day by the things that we put in that place, in that blank, if you will. For to me, to live is whatever it is that we idolize. And Jesus comes in and says, you know what? For me, to live is you. And that way you can be made right with God. See, without Jesus, dying is not gain. Dying can't be gain. It's only loss. It's a loss of money. It's a loss of comfort. It's a loss of approval. It's a loss of meaning. It's a loss of life. It's to lose everything because you're spending an eternity apart from the thing that gives you purpose and meaning in life. It's to know Jesus and to be known by him. Why can Paul say that he rejoices in his suffering then? Why can he say that even if he loses his own life, it's gain? I mean, he lost his career. He lost his career as a church planter as he knew it. He couldn't make tents anymore. He couldn't travel the world anymore. He couldn't live life as he knew it any longer. It changed everything for him to suffer in this way. He would spend the rest of his days in jail, yet he had joy. Why? Because his purpose wasn't defined by his circumstances. His purpose was defined by the mission. It's because Jesus applied his perfect life and sacrificial death to Paul. And then he set him on the same mission that he was on himself. Paul knew the resurrection was coming for him. And when we put our faith in Jesus as well, we know the same is true for us. See, Paul says this in Philippians 2, which we'll get more in depth in here in the next few weeks. But he said in chapter 2, verse 5, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus was living for God's glory ultimately, of course. But he came to suffer for us so that through his suffering, we could experience the salvation that God wants for us. So you can write this down as the last point for today. Jesus' suffering served to save us. It served the mission. Jesus' mission was to save us. Can I, hello, can I get an amen out there, please? Right? Man, that gets us fired up, right? Jesus came for that. He didn't, came to, he didn't come to make us perfect. He didn't come to make sure that we were better than everybody else. He didn't come to make sure that when we have rivalries within other denominations, other church people and all that kind of stuff, we can feel superior to them. He didn't come for any of those things. He came to save us from our sins that we will commit every single day until the day that we die here. That's why death is gain. That's why death is gain for us because it'll finally be an end to this fleshly, worldly life where we idolatry all over the place. We sin, we have things in the place of Jesus and yet he will make us perfect. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's the completion that he meant in verse 6 from chapter 1. Jesus' suffering serves that for us. Whatever idols we have, whatever sins we struggle with, he's shaping us into his image more and more, and he's replacing our idols with himself over time. And that's why dying can be gain. And it looks scary. Suffering is no fun. Nobody wants to suffer, right? Especially when we are used to comfort 
but it can be turned into something valuable for us. You know, I've heard it compared to alchemy before. Maybe you guys have heard this uh, in somewhere, in some other way, shape, or form. But you remember what alchemy is, right? It's turning, you know, seemingly useless metals into gold. Well, nobody's ever been able to do it, right? Because it's changing the chemical makeup of something into something else. And so it started in the Middle Ages when science really started to take shape as we kind of know it. And scientists were trying to make lead into gold because they wanted to be able to make that thing that's valuable. They wanted to be able to manufacture that which was valuable. And, you know, we do that all the time. We try to clean ourselves up and say, you know what? If I could just turn this lead of my life into some gold by doing some good things, then I'll be okay. Then I'll look good. I'll look nice and shiny. We try to polish it up. We try to make it look good. We can't change what's useless into something valuable. We just can't do it. We try it, and we try it. That's what religion does in our life. Religion does that for us when we try to make ourselves look like gold, and we never can be. But listen, Jesus is the great alchemist of our soul. He actually takes the useless circumstances that look meaningless to us, the suffering, the pain, the things that we don't understand, and he turns them into something valuable for God's glory and for the good of his mission in this life. And you know what? He, he doesn't even do that with our circumstances. He does it with us too. Isn't that beautiful? He turns us into something worthwhile. He turns us from something valueless and meaningless and purposeless, aimless in our life, and he gives us direction and purpose and value in his eyes. Jesus is the great alchemist for us so that now we won't live for ourselves or even for the good things in life like our kids or our job or our family or our finances or whatever you want to fill in that blank with. Instead, we'll live for him and our lives will not only have meaning and joy, but we'll be able to see that into eternity. Death will be gain. And how we view death reveals what we're truly living for. That's kind of the key of that. You know, so are we just using God to get to the things that we think are better? in our life? Or can we really say that dying is gain? Because if we can't get to that second half of the statement, living is for Christ, sure, I live for Jesus. I do all those things, right? Rich young ruler said the same thing. And then when, when Jesus said, well, you got to sell it all. And in other words, you got to die to your old life. Can we say that when we die, it's actually gain for us? That's really hard. It's really hard. Fill in the blank with something, but it's not Jesus unless death can be gained for you. How, how we view death reveals what we're truly living for, but when we put our faith in him and let him save us, we'll take whatever loss life throws at us in stride because we know it will ultimately serve his mission. And that's why the idea of going to live in a foreign country, for example, you know, going around unreached people groups and moving, selling everything you own and, and moving somewhere else, that's not extreme. That's normal for the Christian life. The idea of engaging your neighbor with the gospel and inviting them over and serving them even when they don't look like you or act like you or have the same culture as you, man, that looks pretty extreme to the world, but it's not. It's really just normal for those of us who are following Jesus. The idea of forgiving somebody even when they don't deserve your forgiveness, oh my, that looks extreme, but it's not. It's normal when you follow Jesus. See, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit that is his own Holy Spirit a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of good judgment. That's what 2 Timothy 1.7 says. And that enables us to face anything like Paul here, no matter what it is. Whether it's suffering at the hands of the Romans, whether it's suffering or trouble at the hands of, quote, fellow Christians, no matter what it is, even if it's death, Paul can face it because he has a spirit, not of fear, 
but of courage, of power, of love. Let me end with this. I want to go back to Nick Ripon's example of losing his son. You know, I just can't imagine the level of suffering that he and his family faced at that time on that Easter in 1997 while he was living on mission for God. And him still being able to walk away with that same kind of attitude, something's different there. And we need to lean in and look at what that difference is in his life. He wrote this on a blog some years ago. And he said this of that particular thing. And I'll end with reading this quote at length, okay? So just stick with it. I didn't put it up on the screens because I want you to hear what he's saying as if he's talking to you. He said, people asked me, how can God allow your son to die on Easter? You're only seeking to serve and praise him among peoples unreached and untouched with the gospel. How can a father handle watching his son die long before his child's dreams could be realized? Well, he wrote this. He said, I imagine God's thoughts when Jesus died on the cross could have been very similar to this. His son died on Easter too. And then he writes what he imagines God might have been feeling at the time. And he says this of God. He says, my son was a skilled carpenter, but I knew that he was made for something more than shaping wood with his hands. He was made for shaping lives with his words, with a touch, or even with his tears. His life's work was that of doing the miraculous. He healed the sick. He fed thousands. He allowed those without worth and unclean to touch him and to be touched by him. He could weep over the death of a friend and almost in the midst of a sob, call him from the grave to life again. People were enamored with the miraculous things that he said and did. A few people began to discern that it wasn't what he did that was miraculous. The real truth they began to discover was that it wasn't what he did, but that it was that he was the miracle. Others feared that they did not understand what they did not understand. I saw my son arrested and ridiculed. Their spit ran down his face. Their jeers rang in his ears and their tools of torture caused blood to disfigure his countenance. Cheers from the days before when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey turned to the jeering of a mob as they watched my son drag his own cross up to a hill of death where they raised his mutilated body nailed upon a wooden cross to the sky. Today I watched my son die. Political and the religious leaders of his day thought this was the end of the threat. Those who had followed him believed their hope was dead, so they denied they'd ever known him. Both sides deeply believed this was the end of the story, this death, this killing of my son. Once praised, now once and for all crucified to death. And here was everyone's mistake, their misunderstanding. They believed the crucifixion was the end of the story, that death ended all things, the threat to the reigning government, people's hopes for an earthly Messiah. But everyone was wrong. My son was not to be defined by the waving palm leaves or the adoring multitude or by the shouts of the jeering crowd. Neither would he be defined by the crucifixion. There was more to come, more to the story. This was my plan. The crucifixion by man was a prelude to the resurrection by the Father. I allowed and watched my son die to be crucified, to demonstrate my love and forgiveness for all people for all times. I'm not only a father of love, I'm a father of power. And while my love allowed for the crucifixion of my son, my power would not allow him to stay dead because I had determined the crucifixion was just the prelude to the resurrection. And then after imagining his thoughts, Ripken concluded with this, and I'll read this last section. For my family and the anniversary of my son's death at Easter brings out this bittersweet reminder. There is no shortcut, no easy way out. No way to avoid wounds made inevitable by living in a broken and imperfect world. Like God's son. Wow. 
My son died way too young, at least for a season, for unacceptable reasons. But my family knows that this earthly life is just a prelude to the eternal life that we can have through and with Christ. Jesus' crucifixion was for a moment in time. His resurrection is forever. Redemption Church, do you believe that? When you're asked the question, well, who do you live for? What's your answer? To me, to live is Christ. Is that it? Let's pray that God would do that in us today. Let's live for Jesus this week together. Let me pray. God, thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.